Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm your podcast host. And today we're going to talk about an interesting edge of gene editing. So as most listeners to the podcast know, gene editing has been uh, an amazing development in the last few years, allowing researchers either just in, well, people in research, basic research, or in application to change a single base or a small number of bases in the DNA code of an organism. It's an amazing technology, and we've seen application in here from disease resistance in plants to sickle cell anemia to you name it. There's so many interesting applications. It all is based on a bacterial immune system. And, well, maybe I won't spill the beans. Maybe I'll just introduce our, go- our guest and let him do it. So today we're talking with Joe bondi Denemy. And he's an assistant professor at the University of California, San Francisco. And he's been playing a key role in a lot of the latest developments in this area. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bondi Denemy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. It's really great that you could do this with us. It's it's such a cool topic. So I was going to start getting into the discussion about what this is and what this isn't. But maybe you could give us um, an idea of what... Gene, let's go with CRISPR, you know, this type of gene editing. What is it? I and mean, we talked about this dozens of times on the podcast, but we get new people every week. So give me a good expert breakdown on what this is. Yeah, CRISPR systems exist in uh, prokaryotes, which are bacteria, and another domain of life called archaea, single-celled microbes on the planet. Um, and it's an immune system that actually helps them protect themselves from their viruses, much like we have an immune system that will hopefully protect us from uh, the coronavirus and anything else that's going on. Uh, single-celled microbes get exposed to viruses all the time, and they have immune systems that, that deal with that. One of them has become quite famous, CRISPR, and it essentially works by, by stealing a snippet of the DNA of the virus and, and memorizing it for future exposure, exposure sort of like a, a mugshot record. Um, but the way it actually enacts that immunity is with a small guided pair of scissors that uh, can cut the DNA of the virus in the future. And that's what has made it such a transplantable and useful tool because it can essentially be programmed by us to cut any DNA sequence we want or even an RNA sequence if we want. Um, and that's how bacteria have developed it and used it uh, to protect themselves. And so how have we co-opted this technology, and we meaning like the wider scientific community? Right. Uh, you know, everybody's using it. So what are some of the ways that you have seen it used, even though five years ago it was widely unknown? Well, yeah, the, you're right. The list is, is incredibly long. I think first the uh, strong emphasis I want to make is that CRISPR uh, has become a really revolutionary tool in research. Uh, it's, it's enabled researchers to manipulate the DNA of nearly every cell and organism that we work with 
And that means that it will accelerate discoveries. So that means discoveries that will affect human health um, from cancer to vaccines to uh, even how we can make better biofuels, for example. So it, it is really going to accelerate the pace of research. And that has already happened. I think where the discussion and promise and excitement come is when we talk about human gene editing and what can be done to fix genetic diseases. And that's something that is still very much uh, open, an open question. It can certainly be done in a dish. The goals, of course, of fixing genetic diseases like sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis, um, these are things that people are working hard on. uh, And and time will tell whether CRISPR really becomes the sort of therapy that uh, we dream it to be. Um, But right now, it's already changed uh, the world of research in a massive way. Yeah, and changed the lives of two Chinese twins, right? And and, and a physician in China. Um, I mean, this this has been used in humans to some degree because they were their uh, editing of an HIV um, receptor was CRISPR based, correct? That's what I've heard. Yeah, um, the, yeah. you know, I'm reading the the media reports just like you on that one. Um, it was obviously it's a really um, incredible story of, of something that most people in this field have, have said uh, should not be done, but that seems to have been some embryo editing of, of yeah, twins that were born uh, having this receptor knocked out, a pretty remarkable development. Yeah, it just shows how fast this can go. And, you know, we can maybe in, a, maybe in another episode talk about the ethics around it because it allows you to do a lot of very powerful things. But in a way, it kind of ties in with your work in that over the last several years, there's been so much emphasis around inhibitors of gene editing or inhibitors of the Cas9 enzyme, the enzyme that actually does the cutting under the guidance of the you know, little RNA snippet that tells it where to do the processing. And and why has there been such an interest in the inhibitors? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad there's been a, a big interest in it. Uh, this is an area where my lab focuses almost exclusively. Um, we, we work on them because, you know, I opened with the mentioning these viruses that infect bacteria, and this is why CRISPR exists. Th- this is what we focus on primarily in my lab. We actually don't really work on gene editing. We focus on how um, these bacterial viruses interact with bacteria and how CRISPR is supposed to stop them and then how they counteract CRISPR immunity. So that's led us and others to discover these uh, proteins that we call anti-CRISPRs, which are inhibitors of CRISPR. Um, they're really, I think, the you know to answer your question why there's been so much interest, I think they're very fascinating to think about the arms race between bacteria and their viruses. And bacteria invent this amazing RNA-guided nuclease system uh, but then these viruses figure out very clever and, and maybe simple ways to turn it all off. Uh, so we focus on understanding how that works and, and, and how, um, how that can be leveraged for microbial applications. Um, I think there has been a lot of interest also in using them to turn off the gene editing tool of Cas9, even inside of an organism or inside of, of human cells. Uh, and this is really moving forward as well. So I think that's really, that's also a significant amount of interest. Yeah, actually, there's a uh, whole section at DARPA that is looking at CRISPR inhibitors, almost like this is something that would be uh, relevant to military or national defense. And it, is there anything that you're aware of that would really be kind of tying in with this, that, this, that maybe these yeah. anti-gene editing compounds would be used to neutralize a real threat, like a bioengineered threat? Yeah, I think that's the idea, uh, or one idea. The, the DARPA program 
uh, I'm actually a part of, uh, together with uh, Jennifer Doudna. We're a part of that Safe Genes program. There are many goals there. Uh, one is certainly to enable safe gene editing, and there there are you know considerations of what could be done that would be nefarious with Cas9 or Cas12 uh, editing enzymes. So certainly that is one application where where you can envision um, being able to turn off an editing tool in a rapid manner uh, would be useful. This can be achieved with inhibitor proteins, inhibitor small molecules, even now inhibitor nucleic acids. So there is a lot of interest in for us in discovering how nature inhibits CRISPR, we think that is sort of the most compelling way to look at it. But there's also been a lot of development from from labs focused more on the on the end goal, which is just inhibiting Cas9 through any 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 way possible. So um, this is something that DARPA has decided to fund, and we're very grateful for that because it's been a it's been an amazing program. Um, and so we're using that that support to uh, uncover the diverse ways that that bacterial viruses inactivate Cas9. And now you mentioned Cas9 and Cas12. These are just different versions of that same uh, nuclease, that same gene-cutting enzyme or DNA-cutting enzyme. How many different ones are there, and do they all succumb to the same inhibitors? So actually, they're not really just different versions. Cas9 and Cas12 are, are not homologous proteins, so they don't share a recent common ancestor. Um, they, it's, they've actually been invented from different nuclease domains in, in nature independently. So it's as if bacteria have invented uh, CRISPR nucleases at different times. Uh, and so really, it's, it's pretty fascinating how many more there could be out there. Um, there are a lot of flavors, though, variants of Cas9 and variants of Cas12 that do share a common ancestor. And um, those are being harnessed for many different gene editing applications where one Cas9 works great in a certain cell type or does well for a certain application, but another one does well for a different application. Um, The inhibitors can be quite broad spectrum. Some of them reach very broadly and can inhibit quite a few Cas9 proteins. Uh, We don't think much about ones that inhibit Cas9 and Cas12. We don't think that would necessarily be advantageous or, or something we would need. Um, but it seems like the inhibitors uh, sort of have a certain reach, uh, and some are very broad and some are very narrow, and it's hard to necessarily understand why, but that's part of the value for us of sort of cataloging and characterizing these proteins that we find. We're speaking with Dr. Joseph Bondi-Denemy. He's an assistant professor at University of California, San Francisco, and we're talking about inhibitors of gene editing, namely inhibitors of the CRISPR process. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. The Talking Biotech Podcast is in a new growth phase, and that's thanks to you, the loyal listener. We appreciate that loyalty in your role in the word-of-mouth advertising, the graffiti tagging, and other vandalism you do to promote this podcast. The spray-painted Talking Biotech Podcast rules on the 405 in L.A. gets about 100,000 views a day, so thanks for that. But more importantly, remember that this series is a collection of experts talking about the subjects of their expertise. In the swirling snot cloud of misinformation on the internet, it's a great way to review and reference the nuances of issues like glyphosate and how experts assess health and environmental risk. 
What's up with new technologies, reaching the field or your physician's office? Where did our crops and animal friends come from in time and space? These are just some of the questions we've covered, and the archive is certainly worth a revisit. And thank you for your support on Patreon. That support will directly translate into improving this podcast and expanding the media empire we create. And now, back to the podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast with Dr. Joseph Bondi Denemy. He's an assistant professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and his laboratory works on anti-CRISPRs, so the small molecules that uh, inhibit the uh, function of gene editing machinery. And so before we were talking a lot about what these are and, and how it works, but what exactly did your lab find in terms of anti Cas9 or anti-CRISPR products. The the maybe most relevant discovery uh, we made to this end was uh, uncovering genes that encode proteins that inactivate a flavor of Cas9 that is the really most widely used Cas9. It's it's called Spy Cas9, and it's found in in maybe every genetics lab in the world now that people use to to edit DNA. Um, we, we discovered these in bacterial viruses that infect a bacterium called Listeria, which is a foodborne pathogen that we are working on in my lab. And we were looking to see how these bacterial viruses, these Listeria viruses, dealt with the fact that Listeria encodes Cas9 itself. Uh, and we discovered that the way these, these viruses get around Listeria's Cas9 is by producing small proteins that bind to Cas9 and inactivate it. It turned out that the Listeria Cas9 is very closely related to the well-used Spy Cas9, and we were lucky that two of the proteins we found were really uh, perfectly sort of naturally evolved potent inhibitors of Spy Cas9. And we showed that this works great in bacteria, it works great in a test tube, and they work well in human cells. And I've even heard lately in other organisms like yeast and mosquitoes. So the idea is that these small proteins can be potent uh, inhibitors of Cas9 activity and that nature has crafted them to be really good at, at, at doing this job. Well, that's really cool. <laughs> so how, how do you go about finding something like this? Is it yeah. is it really a question of, you know, you have uh, Listeria makes its own, makes the small molecules, but how, I, I guess that's my big question. You know, what kind of experiment do you do yeah. to actually uncover that? So we used a lot of bioinformatics first. So we sat down at the computer and we wondered what it might look like if a virus was inactivating uh, CRISPR-Cas9. And we reasoned that it might look like an example where you would have a bacterial isolate of Listeria that um, encodes guide RNAs that actually targets a virus that is sitting right inside of its own DNA. This is a very weird concept, but maybe if you think of it like HIV integrates in our own DNA, it would be as if our immune system were attacking HIV or should be attacking it, but it were being inhibited. So HIV is very good at this. It prevents our immune system from attacking it. We looked for something very similar in Listeria. We looked for examples where there was a virus in the Listeria DNA that was actually hiding out, even though there should be a guide that would destroy it. And we reasoned on the computer that that virus could be encoding an inhibitor to stop Cas9 from destroying uh, the virus. And so that was actually our first step. And then from there, we said, what are the genes in that virus that look new, genes that have not been characterized before? And then Ben Rauch, my postdoc who led this work, 
uh, cloned and isolated a lot of the genes from these viruses and just started testing them uh, in some experiments and some controlled experiments where we could ask which genes turn Cas9 off. And that was how he ended up, ended up honing in on the first four uh, Cas9 inhibitors for this, uh, this, this variant, the spy Cas9 variant. Okay, so if that's the case, are, are these just small, like small nucleic acids that are being processed somehow, or are they actually peptides that are being uh, somehow coming originating from the uh, viral genome? Yeah, they're the latter. So they, these are small proteins that are being encoded and, and transcribed and translated from the integrated virus or from an infecting virus. Um, and their their size is somewhere around 50 to 100 amino acids usually. So they're they're bigger than one might think of as a peptide, but they're small proteins. They're and they're folded proteins with real structures. And and with collaborators, we've solved a number of their structures and see that they form folds that have not really been seen before. So these are not proteins that have previously been discovered. And biochemically, they interact usually very tightly with Cas9, or for the ones we found for Cas12. Similarly, they they interact tightly with Cas12, and through one way or another, they inactivate its function. But the diversity is really what keeps me going on this area. Every anti-CRISPR we find has a completely different mechanism, a completely different sequence, a completely different structure, and probably a completely different evolutionary origin. So these are being sort of invented or pieced together by these viruses from unknown sources, and together the viruses use them to inactivate Cas9 or Cas12. Well, see, this is really more intriguing now because it does this mean that if we look across the scope of all of the different viruses that are out there, are we likely to find large numbers of these kinds of uh, inhibitors? Are they are they probably really something that's everywhere? Yes, I think that's I think it's a reasonable extension of, of what we're talking about. I, but I think the important point to consider is that not every bacterium in the world has CRISPR. So I think the uh, what one might expect is for bacteria that commonly have CRISPR, that the viruses that infect those bacteria need some strategy to deal with CRISPR immunity, whether that's an anti-CRISPR protein or many anti-CRISPR proteins or any other process that is an anti-CRISPR phenotype. In other words, a way to avoid CRISPR immunity. I think they'll have it or they'll need it. In other cases, bacteria have different immune systems like restriction enzymes that are also there to stop viral replication. And those viruses will need strategies to deal with those, those immune systems to be effective. Um, it's true that you know even in human viruses, that the viruses that infect us have many, many little proteins and mechanisms to deal with all of our immune intricacies. We have many innate and adaptive immune barriers that a successful virus needs to overcome. And so this is really common in, in the world of virology to think about the ways the virus have to deal with immunity, and it, it's it's paralleled in bacteria. Well, I guess then the next question really is the good corollary is, all right, this is an arms race, and you have uh, bacteria that are making the uh, you know Cas9 or the you know the CRISPR process, and yep. then you have viruses that are doing the inhibitors. Yep. And so, is there an inhibitor of the inhibitor? Yes, I think there is. Um, we, we have uh, identified something that, that looks a lot like this, um, and it's actually turned out to be really interesting. The, the answer, we think, is that it's actually really hard to directly inhibit the inhibitors, because if, if you remember, I was saying that we find a different one all the time. Um, so viruses encode many different anti-CRISPRs, even closely related viruses will encode totally different anti-CRISPR proteins. So for the host, the bacterium, to inactivate every one of those would be very challenging. You would need a different inhibitor of the inhibitor for every single inhibitor. 
But what we've discovered is that the, the promoter that drives transcription of these inhibitor genes is highly conserved. And so we think the promoter is actually a weak point. And we've identified bacteria that encode transcriptional repressors that actually block activity of the, of the anti-CRISPR promoter. So if that makes sense, it's essentially an anti-CRISPR repressor that would act as an anti-anti-CRISPR. <laughs> yeah, so basically you're shutting down the anti by turning off its uh, transcription or the, you're turning on the gene in the first place. You know, this is really a fascinating field. Do you think that it's uh, – do you think it can go any faster? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, it changes almost daily. I mean, you go online and you, you flip on, you go to Google News every day and you punch in gene editing and it's 25 new stories. Right. And, and, you know, you're at such a good place in your career and, and, and uh, you know, physically in a great place out there um, at UCSF. You know, this is a, a, a great time to do some big discoveries. So, you know, if, if people wanted to learn more about what you do and, um, you know, what's on the cutting edge of this, is there a good website or social media location where they can find you? Well, for, for what we do in my lab, I, I uh, would direct people to Twitter. Um, I, I like to tweet a lot of the the work we do and also a lot of the work of my colleagues in the CRISPR and anti-CRISPR field. Uh, I'm at, at Joe Bondi Denemy, all one word. Um, and there's, there's a lot of great uh, media coverage of the world of CRISPR um, that you can find, you know, all over the place. Nature writes a lot of great stories about the world of CRISPR. And, and there's also a lot of, you know, writing that might be a little bit more sensationalist and a little, a little overblown. So I would urge people to take everything they read with a grain of salt, probably, you know, no new paper is a cure to all cancers or all diseases. Um, but it's a prog it's a, it's a, it's a pro it's progress that this whole field is making towards developing things that will be useful for people. Um, but you're right. It, it is moving very quickly. Um, there's a lot of interest in it for good reason. Um, and, and I enjoy working in this area with my lab because uh, we're sort of on the sidelines of the gene editing world. We're working on the focused only exclusively on the natural functions of these systems, uh, CRISPR systems and bacteria. And that's a lot of fun to think about that, the arms race. Uh, and, and just as an added plug on, uh, to, to develop some of these anti-CRISPR uh, proteins on the gene editing side that we're talking a lot about. I've also co-founded a, a company based in Berkeley called Acrogen Biosciences, which is developing the commercial or gene editing uh, side of anti-CRISPRs. So with those two arms uh, moving uh, together, hopefully, um, uh, my lab focused on the biology and, and the company on the gene editing. Hopefully we can really make some progress here. So, Dr. Joseph Bondi Denemy, uh, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It was really, really neat. And I, I love this new field and wish you all the best going forward. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and uh, listeners, thank you again for listening to another episode of Talking Biotech. It's great to be back here with you, as always. If, uh, I'm very excited to take your, your tweets and your emails, and let's continue to grow this particular enterprise. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Folta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. 
your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.